It is good to be here with you, to be in the room with you all. It's just an encouragement, uh, being present with one another. It's part of our humanity. It's not good to be alone. It's good to be together. So I'm so thankful to be back with you, uh, even as we uh, are, are mourning, many of us, our, our dear sister Pat Carr, our, our sister Sue Dwyer, both of them passed away this week. Sue's family is going to uh, celebrate her life uh, as a family. Um, if you're close with them, uh, we encourage you to reach out um, as well. But in the midst of those sorrows and sadnesses, in, in those very kinds of moments, that's where the Lord brings his promises. That's what we see in the whole story of the scriptures, this story of hope the Lord is working for us. And it's what we're going to see today in the story of Abraham. It's, it's, it's impossible that the Lord could do the things that he says he'll do. They're, they're impossible things. This is what the Lord promises. But many of us, in the face of impossibility, in the face of, of walls of grief, grief, the separation of death, it's like, God, can you really do this? God, are you really gonna keep your promises for me? Many people feel this at Christmas time. As we, as we come toward Christmas, it presses on us even more with all the pressures that come about at this season. You can imagine a single mom who's lost friends, who's lost family due to divorce, the messiness that can happen in those situations, and all of the pressure of the season with all of the bills from the attorneys plus all the bills, the unexpected hospital bills, and Christmas is coming up. No extra time to take on a second job because she can't afford good childcare. Pressure, impossibility. And does God even see it? Does God have anything for me in this season? It looks on her Instagram account, her Facebook account, and sees people posting their, their family photos, hashtag blessed. Could that be for me? Could I be blessed? Could that be true of me? Is there any promise for me? I think very really, I wrote this before Thursday, but I think of elderly widows and widowers who have lost their loved ones, and they wonder, can we be happy again? Can I be happy again? Will there be happiness that I could experience? Could this weight be lifted off of me? Could there ever be something that I could really call life again? Is there any hope for me? Does God see me in my mourning? Offering an empty promise from a pulpit could hurt people even more. You know how this is. Words can fall flat. Word band-aids when we offer them lightly. The wonder is Jesus, the one we look to, he comes in the middle of all these kind of broken hopes all sorts of broken people, hurting people, and he offers these incredible words of blessing and promise. He could say to that single mom, he could say, blessed are the poor in spirit. Right now, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He says to the one who is in mourning and grief and loss, blessed are you who mourn. Blessed are you. You'll be comforted. But how can we know that this promise isn't just like the word band-aid. How can we know? How can we have assurance? 
And this is where I see Abraham being such a help and a mentor to us. And God's gracious covenant, his relationship he made with Abraham, such a gift to us. In the midst of all those questions, in the midst of impossibility, the Lord would not let any impossible barrier stand in his way. The Lord would meet him in his faltering faith and prove that nothing will be impossible with God. Now, Abram, this, this story that we're, we're looking at today, as we look at the big story of hope, and we've looked at Adam and Noah, we're gonna look at Abraham and then Moses and then David and then Jesus Christ. But as we look at Abraham, he was first called Abram. He means great father or chief father. He was from a city called Ur. It, you can go look it up and, and Google Ur. It's been excavated. You can see uh, a picture, an aerial photo of the excavation of Ur. You can see pictures of it. It's there on the Euphrates River, a port city. For the ancient Near East, this was a, an advanced city. And he and his family left this city and they go into Haran. So uh, they go northwest and they settle in modern day Syria there. Now, he's there. He has a wife, her name's Sarai. And the Bible tells us very poignantly, when the Bible tells you details, it, it, it doesn't have spare words. Maybe you've noticed this in the Bible. It doesn't read like modern novels. Like if you read Tolkien and he goes on about a tree for like three pages, you know? The, the Bible doesn't, doesn't offer extra words. So when it offers you words, those details usually matter, particularly details like this. In chapter 11, verse 30, now Sarai was barren. His wife was barren. That detail matters. Why? Because as we've been reading Genesis, we've seen the Lord offering his promise and doing his purposes in the world through generational bearing of children. The Lord would bring about an offspring of Eve who would crush the serpent's head. We've been longing and looking for that hope. And now we're going to see that hope taken into a new key and into a new moment with Abram. Abram hears the Lord. He's probably a pagan. He may remember stories of the God of Noah. He may remember stories of the God of Adam and his children. But coming from Ur, he's probably a pagan who worshiped like the other Mesopotamians. And the Lord speaks to him and gives him this charge and all of this promise. He says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I'll show you. I'll make of you a great nation. I'll bless you and make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I'll curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This incredible promise, this huge, large promise. But he's married to a barren woman. How could I be a great nation? How could all the nations of the earth be blessed in me? How could it be possible? Well, with that question, let's take a moment and pause and pray, and then we'll see how the Lord answers that question. Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord, that you would meet someone living far from you and call them to yourself and give them great purpose. Thank you for this story of Abraham. Please speak now by your word and spirit. Meet us in our points of need. Do so for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Can God overcome impossible barriers to keep hope alive? Yes, the story of Abraham proves this is so. The Lord makes impossible promises. And the wonder of the Lord is that he not only makes the promise, but he helps us to trust him. He helps us to receive a promise and to, and to trust him. It's, it's kind of like a parent. A parent. Uh, many of you have been here, and you've, you've told your kids something. You've been a teacher. You've told your kids something. You've been a boss, and you've told an employee something. And you told them at once, and you expected that they would remember it, right? But many of us learn to account for the fact that people forget and the fact that people also struggle to understand why and people also just struggle. <laughs> and so we remind, we help along the way. And this is the way the Lord is with Abraham. He helps a person who has incredible faith. We can't get around the fact that Abraham had incredible faith. This man, who's already, he's classic, let's say. He's probably about 75 at the time he receives this promise from the Lord. And already in his, his classic age, he trusts the Lord and he goes. He goes. He went as the Lord told him. That's what it says in the next verse, verse four. He takes his whole family and Lot, his nephew, with him. 75 years old when he departed from Haran. He takes his wife, Sarai, all their possessions, and he goes. And he passes through the whole land. And he sees this land the Lord has promised him. He goes. Incredible moment of faith. The next chapter, as, as he's back up in the land with his, his nephew, they're settling in the land, and, and it, it gets to be kind of a dispute because they don't have enough room for one another to shepherd together. He doesn't worry about not having the best looking land. He trusts the Lord's promise and he takes the less appealing land and the Lord makes his promise again to Abram there. Abram just having this incredible faith, he bravely defends his land with, with just a, a, a few hundred men against some of the greatest powers of the world at this time in Genesis 14. Incredible faith and trust in God being with him. He gives massively Imagine being an ancient Near Eastern person who doesn't have a steady income and automatic you know, payment straight to your bank account from your employer who would give a tenth of all that he has in faith because God has blessed him. Incredible faith, but it is not a perfect faith. It is a faltering faith. Repeatedly faltering and terribly faltering. And I find encouragement in that because I find myself having a faltering faith, an imperfect faith. And if I had to be perfect in faith, if I had to be perfect in trust toward God in order to be saved, I would not be saved. And so Abraham's story reminds us we're not saved by the quality of our faith, but by the object of our faith, the faithful one. We see Abram's faltering when there's a famine in the land and he goes into Egypt. He's going to do this again in, in chapter 20 with another king, but he goes to Egypt and under Pharaoh, he's nervous because, you know, Sarai, she's a good looking gal. 
And he's thinking to himself, if, if they see Sarai and they know I'm her husband, well, they're gonna take Sarai and they're gonna kill me to get rid of me so they could have her because he knows the way other cultures work with women, the way they misuse women. And so he assumes this awful thing and going down to Egypt, he tells everyone that she's his sister. Think about this. He puts his wife's honor, her safety, at risk. He, he is risking a terrible, horrible trauma upon his wife so that he can save his own skin because he's not remembering that just a little bit ago, the Lord had promised that he would bless those who bless him. Him who dishonors him, he would curse. The Lord had his back, but he falters. And the Lord kindly, kindly delivered Abram out of that situation and Sarah and protected her dignity and even was kind to Pharaoh. Poor Pharaoh in this case, who had no idea what he was doing. He just was acting like any guy. The Lord was kind in this way in the midst of his faltering. Abram will falter again. The Lord has promised that he would have an offspring and he's promised that it would be by Sarai, his barren wife. That's really hard to imagine, but he's promised it. It's been 10 years since he's come into the land. Time has gone by. Has this ever happened for you? You've had to wait a long time and you wonder, is God really gonna do it? He's waited 10 years. He's 86, 11 years. And so Sarai and him, they're struggling. And so they, they do something that would have been culturally acceptable in their day, but we would look back at it and realize this is terrible. Sarai takes her servant, her slave, Hagar, and says, have a son with her. This would be culturally acceptable in the ancient Near East. Most slaves would be gotten through a, basically just the realities of poverty. Somebody needs help, and so they, they sell themselves for a season, and they, over time, are able to purchase back their freedom ordinarily. Nevertheless, slavery always is a less than perfect reality and often terrible, as we will see it becoming here. Hagar is given to Abram to bear a child. And in the midst of all that wreckage and brokenness, Ishmael is born. And Sarah becomes jealous that Ishmael is born and that Hagar has a son. And so she, she gives her a hard time. She sends her away. Hagar is now out in, in, the, in the field, single mom, no possessions. Things don't look good for her. How on earth could life continue? But the Lord sees her there. And he calls her out of that place and he offers blessing for her son and hope for her. And so she called a well that she found there, Bir Lahai Roy, which means the living one who sees me, well of the living one who sees me. She was seen by the Lord. Even this one who was in relationship with Abram, the Lord said, I'll bless those who bless you. The Lord would even bless her on account of his promise to Abram, even in spite of Abram's terrible faltering faith. So we're seeing Abram, this guy, who has incredible faith at moments, but falters terribly. 
And it's he and his wife both. They both struggle. They're both human. Sarai is, is, is also growing older. In chapter 18, the Lord comes to Abram, and this is an incredible grace. The Lord comes to him, and it's also a wonder. Three men visit Abram, and they speak with the same words that the Lord speaks in the previous chapters. It's clear that this is the Lord speaking through these three men. We remember we worship a God who is eternally three, eternally one, this wonderful picture even from the earliest chapters of the Bible here in chapter 18. But these three men come and visit Abram. And they say to, to Abram, where's your wife Sarah? He said, she's in the tent. And the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Visits him, promises again. But Sarah was listening at the tent she was advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. And so Sarah laughed to herself. <laughs> you could imagine, you'd laugh too. After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And the Lord said to Abram, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? When, when the Greeks translated this into what we call the Septuagint nowadays, Shall any matter be impossible with God? Shall it be impossible with God? The answer is no. But it's so hard to see that at moments. And so the Lord offers help. Help along the way. I've already mentioned he repeats his promises. He repeats it. We could look at all the places individually in chapter 13, 15, 17, multiple times, in chapter 18, multiple times, but the Lord repeats his promises because he knows that Abram needs to hear it more than once. And it's incredible that Abram, upon hearing these promises, trusted God, and God would count that trust to him as righteousness. But even in his trust, he wavered. And so the Lord said to him, I'm in chapter 15 now, the very important part of the story of Abram, when the Lord ratifies his covenant with Abram. He said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. The Lord reminds him of who he is, reminds him of his promise. I'm going to give you this land. But verse 8, he said, oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it. How can I know? Don't you have this feeling sometimes? God, I, I, I go back to the word again and I see a promise again. I believe it, but how can I know? God, I'm struggling to trust. The Lord offers helps for the faltering in faith. He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. He brought him all these. He cut them in half, laid each half over against the other. Uh, in, in my kids' words, it'd be like hot dog style, right? So is that too much? So the, 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 these animals laid over in half, a gruesome picture. Takes all these animals, you can imagine the sights and the smell of it and the, and the work to get this done. It took them all day and so as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful darkness fell upon him. And then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain, know for certain. And here what he says, he offers a realistic hope. Your offspring will be sojourners. First of all, he says, your offspring. 
I'm going to give you children, yes. They'll be sojourners, though, in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. They'll be afflicted for 400 years, but I'll bring judgment on the nation they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete." Much to discuss here that I'm not going to discuss now, but the Lord gives him a realistic promise. You're not going to see the fullness of this land promise. Not for some hundreds of years. This reminds us that the Lord makes promises not always what we want. We wouldn't ask, and Abram wouldn't have asked for his children to have to endure trouble and even slavery in a land not their own. But this was part of the way the Lord would ultimately accomplish what he did promise, that he would give this land to Abram and to his offspring. He says, know this for certain. And when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Repeatedly in the scriptures, the Lord reveals himself as a consuming fire to Moses in the burning bush and the pillar of fire by night to the people of God. And here he comes in this flaming form, appearing. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I give this land. Take a a moment and realize this. In chapter 15, verse 17, when the Lord comes in this form of a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch and pass between those pieces, that gruesome picture, those animals slaughtered and laid in half, he was doing something that was known in the ancient Near East. He was, he was forming and ratifying a covenant by taking what's called an oath of malediction against himself. He was taking an oath that so will I be as these animals if I should break my covenant, if I should betray what I've said. I'll be like these animals that I walk through. And ordinarily, both parties would walk through as a sign that they both will solemnly keep this covenant or else they will be like these animals. But note where Abram is this whole time. (laughs) He's laying down, he's asleep. The Lord passed through alone because it's the Lord who doesn't falter in his faithfulness. It's the Lord who would keep all of the conditions of his covenant. It's the Lord who's going to bring about salvation and every promise will be fulfilled on account of him. It's a wonder. The Lord's gracious covenant continuing, even when he's dealing with sinners who will fail in our part. So the Lord doesn't make it depend on us. He takes it on himself, and he gives signs, signs like these animal sacrifices. We see throughout the Old Testament, animal sacrifice would be a continued sign that the Lord, in spite of every sin and failing and faltering of his people, the Lord would still forgive them. The Lord would still be with them. Eternal, infinite holiness would still be present and with sinful people. How could that even be? It could only be because the Lord would fulfill all righteousness for them and cover them in his own righteousness. And we see all those signs of sacrifice ultimately fulfilled in Jesus who gave us a new sign for his new covenant. You remember this in the upper room with his disciples? He gave a tangible felt sign for us. Something with smell and feel and taste. Something we could see. 
He said, this is my body which is broken for you. He said, take and eat it. He said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Take this, drink it all of you. I'm sad because we missed a time to take the Lord's Supper last week. One of the fundamental goodnesses of being together is being able to see each other, feel each other, and even feel the sign of God's promises when we come together in this way. The Lord knows that we need more sometimes than just words. And so he gives us felt reminders of his promises because he knows how he's made us. We're creatures. He didn't make us as wispy spirits. He didn't just make us as a brain in a vat that just thinks thoughts and ideas all the time. He gave us bodies, bodies that age and decay. He gave us minds and brains that struggle, struggle with depression and doubt, every sort of pain. And he knows we need his word. And sometimes we even need some help to go with it. And he gives it in these gracious signs. And so I look forward to coming to the table again with you, maybe even doing it a little more often in the future because I need help in my faith. I need a tangible reminder. It's like if I was leaving home. You remember this moment. Maybe you have children or you have a spouse, a loved one, and you leave. You leave for work. And you give them, and I love you at the beginning of the day. I love you. Have a good day. And you leave. Well, that's nice. That's nice. But you're across the room and you say, and I love you real quick. But if you go to them and you take hold of them, I love you. You wrinkle their shirt. (laughs) And they remember. They feel it. And this is what the Lord does to us. He doesn't just say, I love you from a distance, but he comes near and he takes hold of us because we need it. He gives another sign. In chapter 17, the sign of circumcision, a sign incredibly ironically placed for a husband who is old and a wife who is barren. He would have a sign of God's covenant that he would be the father of a multitude of nations. He changes his name to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. And he promises that he will establish his covenant between me and you and your offspring after you. How could this be? I mean, Abram asked him this. Can a child be born to a man 100 years old? He's 100 years old now. 100 years old. Some of you feel that more than I feel that. So you you can read this text better than I can. You realize this is is impossible, God. And so God helps him with a sign to remind him. Every time he had special thoughts about Sarah and all sorts of other moments that he would be reminded by that sign. I will give you an offspring. I will. You are a part of my purposes. In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Incredible. But the good news is that the Lord doesn't just give us signs of hope. The Lord actually keeps his impossible promises. He meets us and helps us along, but ultimately he is a God who's faithful. 
we see the Lord fulfilling all of his promise in Genesis 12, one through three, the, the land and the blessing and the seed. We see the, the seed of the land promised by the end of Abram's life. He's, he's buried in a cave, the cave at Machpelah with his wife, Sarai, now called Sarah. And that's one little seed of the land promise the Lord would give to his people, a place for them. We see the Lord bless him repeatedly in spite of his folly and his faltering faith. He would bring, Pharaoh, or bring Sarah and Abram out of Pharaoh's house. He would curse Pharaoh. I'll bless those who bless you. Him who dishonors you, I'll curse. And he even graciously would relieve the curse from Pharaoh's house when he let him go. He curses the kings who take Lot into captivity in chapter 14. He blesses Hagar and Ishmael for Abram's sake. There's just blessing upon blessing, and it's not, none of it's deserved. So there's land and there's blessing, but the wonder is that the Lord meets him with seed, with offspring, with a son. In chapter 21, the Lord visited Sarah as he said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. Again, the Bible doesn't spare words. The Lord did as he said, as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. Which means he laughs. Because both Abraham and Sarah had laughed at the promise. And now the Lord is bringing a new joyous laughter. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac so that he would also bear that sign of God's promises. Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born. The Lord gives what he promises. He's faithful. How can we know this today, though? How can we know this? How can we know when we feel displaced? Many of our neighbors and Christian friends around the world are displaced. They don't feel like they have a home. They're refugees away from their home as a result of war and corruption and all sorts of things. Many of us have felt displaced in our lives when, when jobs end and we have to move with a family and all sorts of situations like this. How can we know that we have a place? How could we know that we have a purpose? How could we know that there's going to be any sort of blessing for us how could we know that we have any share in God's promise to generation after generation? We can know this through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who is called the offspring. Galatians 3.16, Paul speaks of this reality. Matthew, as we've been studying, and we'll go back to it in January, reminds us that Jesus who comes is the son of Abraham the son of David. And Jesus is the one who, who takes the promises to Abraham and he turns them into a new key after his resurrection and he says, go therefore, make disciples of all nations. Take my blessing to all nations, baptizing them, giving them the sign of my presence and of my saving work, this felt sign, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you, reminding them, over and over and over again, because they'll need to hear it again and again and again, that I'm with you always. Jesus is the fulfillment of this pledge and promise, the offspring who came, who laid down his life for us, who took the curse into his own body, all of the conditions of the covenant he met, and all the curses fell on him. 
because he loves us. There was a shadow of this in Abraham's life with Isaac, the Lord testing his faith. Abraham called to give his only son whom he loved. And the Lord had promised. And the Lord provided a ram in his place. Jesus. Something, though, that I think we need as we think about this, as we think about all our hurts and all of our our wants and all of our true needs in this life, is that we have to remember what God has promised. And we have to be able to distinguish that from what he has not. The Lord has promised in Abraham. He has promised a place. Now we, we know that in Christ, he's given us all the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. All who look to God in faith receive more than Abraham even could have imagined. The Lord will bring his kingdom of heaven to earth and will reign with him forever. He will be our God, will be his people. We have a place. We have incredible blessing. We have the Lord with us. We have the Lord for us. If God's for us, who can be against us? We have the ability to participate in generational blessing, mentorship, discipleship, and for those whom God blesses in childbearing and raising up children from generation to generation, sharing the promises. We have that incredible gift, but sometimes God does not give the thing that we ask for. Sometimes he does not give that. And it is a test to our faith. We're the single mom and we just need a little bit more money for Christmas. We're the elderly widower and we wish there wasn't an empty chair. So where is God? In those things, these inconsolable things. I think of Mary again. Mary who was given this incredible promise that she would bear the savior of the world. He will sit on the throne of David and of his kingdom there will be no end. How could this be? Even her friend Elizabeth promised a child in her age. How could all this be? The angel said, nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing. And she's rejoiced in God, her Savior, Savior, who's done great things for her. She rejoices and gives thanks to God, who in his mercy has kept his promises to our father Abraham and to his offspring forever. She's rejoiced in this, but later in life she falters too. And she thinks Jesus is crazy because he doesn't come as the king she expected, taking power by might and military authority. It doesn't look like anyone expected. And so she and the other children that she had bore with, with Joseph goes to Jesus and they're, they're trying to bring him home. They think he's gone crazy. And when he hears they're outside, he says, who are my mother and who are my brothers? It's those who hear the word of God and do it. It's those who trust God. <laughs> and I wonder if something awoke in her in that moment something that may have sustained her as she saw the thing that she loved most in the world die. She watched her son die. She watched him leave her. She knew the Savior who would give up all things to make us his own, to make these promises real to us, who himself gave up reputation and home. 
And so when we're in the middle of loss, we have a savior who knows loss. We have a a savior who's a servant who understands the smoldering wick, the tiny bit of faith that remains, and it seems like he could just be squelched, but he would foster and cultivate that smoldering wick and fan it to flame. He would see that bruised reed bent over about to snap and he would account for you. He knows what it is to be sad. He's a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He doesn't answer our questions. Not all of them. But he himself is the answer to our question. And it's a wonder that he didn't come as a mere idea. Think about this as I close. God in flesh. Not God on a page, merely. Not God the idea. God, the word who became flesh, the one who Thomas, in all his doubt and faltering, could take hold of. This is the Savior we have. A Savior who understands our faltering and our pain. He understands it. He has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. And so I encourage you this Christmas, you can turn to the God who can work wonders. There is nothing impossible with him. And you can go to him even today. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So let's draw near to him in his throne of grace, Faith Church. And we'll receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can draw near to a savior who's known sorrow, a savior who has been in the midst of of all our folly and faltering faith and sin and in his love has gone to the cross to bear the curse for us. Thank you that we have him and not only have an idea of him, but we have a true savior wrapped in flesh and in true humanity. One we can take hold of by faith and one day we will take hold of him truly and he'll take hold of us. Until then, Lord, hold on to us, especially us who are struggling, whose faith is faltering. Meet us, Lord, and carry us through. In Jesus' name, amen.